Hello and welcome back to Motor Max. I know it's been a long time since I've uploaded an episode here. Things are going to change with this show. I'll do an episode on that sometime, probably this weekend. Um, but the show is likely coming to an end. But the good news is it's not going to be gone entirely. I will still use this. I'll explain it. I'll explain it all when I upload that episode. Anyway, speaking of being back, uh, Matthew Burroughs, he was on a couple months ago. We discussed criteria to insert drivers into the Hall of Fame. Well, now we're back. Just weeks after Jimmy Johnson announced his switch from NASCAR to IndyCar, we are back and we are going to discuss drivers that have done the switch and the other switch from IndyCar to NASCAR. So you'll hear drivers like Dario Franchitti, Juan Pablo Montoya, Danica Patrick, and many more drivers that you know from both sports will be featured on this list. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Mr. Burroughs about NASCAR and IndyCar transitions. Sunday. Trying to football because that always makes me antsy. All right. Aside from the fact that the Washington football team is losing, I'm doing pretty fine. I would call by their old name, as I usually do, but I don't want someone from the cancel culture just stumbling upon this and getting canceled because I'm only 15, and I don't want to get canceled yet. So there's that. (laughs) That's probably for the best. But if this wasn't going to be published on the internet, I would have called them by their former name that starts with R. So... We would like to discuss NASCAR to IndyCar crossovers and vice versa. Yeah, it looks like there's, you know, a lot of research yesterday when you first brought up the topic. And, you know, I didn't, I knew it was fairly healthy. I didn't know there was quite so much crossover. Um, Obviously, what brought this up was Jimmy Johnson announcing Mm -hmm. that he's going to be you know, retiring from NASCAR this year and then starting a semi-full-time IndyCar career ne- next season. Um, so I guess that got you thinking. So tell me what brought this up uh, in your mind. Well, I'd never planned to do something like this. I mean, I was, this news broke before I started writing, and my podcast was so inconsistent that the chances of me doing an actual episode on this were slim to none. Because... After the iRacing thing, like when that whole thing was going on, and I had so much free time aside from the little amount of schoolwork I had, mm-hmm. I had so much free time. I was like, eh, screw it. I had this idea last year. I'll put it into play. And I enjoyed it until I didn't. I mean, I enjoyed making them, and I enjoyed getting the feedback, seeing what people liked and disliked. But after a while, you know, it just started wearing down on me. And I was like, you know what? I'd rather write which I enjoy. I thought I would enjoy talking a lot more because I love talking, but that <laughs> that's not at all related to this. Um, the idea came from whoever runs the website's Twitter account saying, hey, we got an idea for this. And then I got the message from you. I was like, yes, screw it. I'll do this. Because that sounds like something interesting, you know? Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's also me. I, I run the social media for Tibend.com, So that's okay. usually me, me speaking. I was like, I don't know if it's you or if it's, I'm assuming the guy who runs it, his name is Ben, because it's got Ben in the title. 
But, yeah, he, he's got his his own thing. Uh. <laughs> I don't know, you have your personal, I think he has his personal, so I was like, maybe you guys have another executive that runs that. I just haven't uncovered his Twitter. <laughs> no, he's, uh, since Ben's got, like, seven kids or something like that, he's, uh, his time has mostly chewed up with that. So, I just got the response from, I'm guessing it was you yesterday, because you said you run it. So, I got the response from you under the Teben account, and then... I got the DM from you. I was like, you know what? I enjoyed talking about the Hall of Fame surprisingly more than I thought I would last time. And I'm pretty sure this is going to go the exact same. So, you know what? Let's go. All Let's- right. Definitely. Hopefully we'll tighten it up a little bit this time. But uh, oh, no, yeah. I, got, I got all the time in the world. <laughs> so I guess the first thing we should start with is just kind of, you know, give a recap in case anyone's been living under a rock and just kind of, you know, what got us to this point. Um, you know, the, the first thing I thought of was, has anyone done essentially what Jimmy Johnson's doing? Uh, has anyone gone from a full-time NASCAR career and attempted a full-time open wheel career? And to my knowledge, no one has done it. Certainly no one of merit. Uh, Jimmy Johnson certainly being an all-timer in stock car racing. Uh, this is unprecedented for someone like him. Like obviously Richard Petty or Dale Earnhardt, you know, never had the chance or didn't do that sort of thing. Um, other than the one-offs here and there, no one, I don't think, unless you found something in your research has ever. Oh, look, I think AJ Allmendinger might have, I'll look him up real quick. Yeah. AJ actually, and this is stuff we'll cover as we're talking about this. AJ started in, I don't think he's, I don't know if he started in open wheel, but his, popularity came from open wheel before nascar he was really good on the uh, cart and champ cart circuit if i'm remembering that right um apparently racing reference is um very specific with how you type it so i have to put the periods in between his name right <laughs> i add almondinger with no periods between the letters and it said nothing come up nothing came up so let's see here Last time he raced in the NASCAR Cup Series, 2018. We scroll down that. Last time he raced in the IndyCar was 2013, and he only did six of those races. Right. And then with Cart, that used to be IndyCar, as far as I know, he did Cart. He ran 2004 and 2005 full-time, and then he did 13 out of 14 races in 2006. Right, and, and that was that should be with the Champ Cart World Series, which was basically what IndyCar is now. And then 2006, it's saying that he raced in zero races, so I'm assuming he tested, or not tested, but DNQ'd for a race, seeing as though it's got him up here. And then 2007, he ran part-time doing 17 races, and 2008 did 27 races. 2009 was his first full-time year, and he ran all 36 races, got one top five and six top tens. Yeah, that, that sounds as far as right. I know, unless you count cart as IndyCar. Um, well, the historians certainly do. Uh, anything, basically anything in that genre of open wheel formula type racing that wasn't F1 or in the FIA is basically IndyCar. I, I don't know all the entities that absorb into that history, uh, but that, that certainly would be IndyCar. So he would be considered an IndyCar to NASCAR yeah, guy. Yeah. yeah, he did a he did six races in 2013, so I guess you could consider that a one-off, even though he did six races. So, 
Well, if you you may not remember this, car more than he was an IndyCar racer. Yeah. Well, you you may not remember this. He had his uh, drug suspension. That I was like seven when that happened, but um... (laughs) yeah, that sort of hampered it. That made his he had kind of had to reset his career, and doing that meant sort of a partial IndyCar NASCAR thing. He he teamed up with Penske, and you know ended up winning a couple of the Xfinity road course races as well as doing really well in the Indy 500 with one of his cars. It was, he's had a, he's had a pretty interesting career. He won two races in 2013 in the Xfinity series and one race in 2000. Okay. So he ran, he won, he won two races during his cup suspension slash Indy car. Yeah. I want to call that his reset, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But I got a bunch of NASCAR magazines from 2010 about to 2014. I got them every year. And that was when his suspension most was between that span. So mm-hmm. going back, I've gone through. I was, I was like, "Oh, so that's what that means." So that's what I didn't understand when I was younger. And I came <laughs> across that. I was like, mm, "So that happened too." Yeah. As you so, see it on his page, it goes: 2011, he ran 36 of 36. In 2012, he won tw- ran 21 of 36. Mm-hmm. 2013, he ran 18 of 36. So 2012 and 2013 were his issue years. So, uh, so moving, so, so from that, so what, since we determined that's an IndyCar to NASCAR, so I was trying to really find someone that any, just anywhere fit what Jimmy Johnson was doing. And I did, and I remembered one and it's not anywhere near the same, but there actually is one probably very not well-known instance of which a semi-full-time NASCAR driver tries to do open wheel. And that would be Stanton Barrett. I don't know if you remember him. Uh, I he don't, was, but that name sounds familiar. Yeah, he's he's an interesting like career because he's professionally a stuntman uh, in Hollywood. He did he does you know hundreds of movies coordinating the stunts, but he does racing as his side hobby. He was in this year somehow it worked out. He was in the Cup Series Daytona Road Course race. He drove, I believe it was the '77 car. I guess Spire needed to fill that role for that race. And he ended up doing that. Um, he was, he raced, I think he was the very first original front row motorsports driver for the cup series. When that team was pretty much a joke in the early two thousands. Um, but anyway, he did that for many years. He was kind of, he kind of has a lovable loser style of, you know, fandom. And all of a sudden in 2000, nine i think he just he wanted to become an indycar driver so he left nascar for the most part and started indycar and it was i think he did five races finished last place in all of them didn't qualify for the indy 500 and then went back to his semi-pro nascar career from there i found one that could that could possibly fit in the category and that's robbie gordon he ran uh Mm -hmm. two races in 1991 for nascar and then went to uh, cart in 1992 and 1993. Mm-hmm. So he went from NASCAR to cart and then did, and then split time in both. He only did one race in 93. So I don't know if you could count him as a, I mean, he was semi full time, I guess he ran races. He was part time. Yeah. And in, did, in 93, that was actually because Davy Allison died. That was the first race back. 
um, that was actually at Talladega where Davey Allison passed away. Robbie Gordon was the fill-in for the Robert Yates 28 in that in that race. Yeah, so that was the race. He ran three races between his NASCAR and kart back and forth. And then he also has statistics in IndyCar. He did zero full. He ran eight total races from 1997, 1999, 2000 through 2004. So no full-time in either series during the 90s. His first full-time NASCAR season was 2002. He went part-time in 2005. And part-time 2012, 11, 10. He probably DNQ'd for a couple races in that span, but he did not go full. He only had a couple of full-time seasons. So I really don't think you could count Robbie as NASCAR to IndyCar. No, especially because I know you're probably looking at his racing reference page, um, but he he had a lot of stuff that wouldn't be listed on there. His uh, off-road racing would be generally considered his full-time job. He did, he would do the Baja races and still does them. In fact, um, that, that's real series. Right. Yeah. It's a stadium super truck series. I can't remember the year that is that listed on racing reference. No, this? it's not. I think it oh, started okay. in 2013 though, because he disappeared out of NASCAR and then went to uh, stadium mm-hmm. super trucks. And last time he ran NASCAR was in 2012. So, right. Yeah, so I, th- I think for all intents and purposes, that would be considered open wheel to NASCAR, even though he's kind of like Almendinger. He's had a very interesting career where he's bounced back and forth. Because he, he won a Cup Series race before he even became a full-time Cup Series driver. Because um, he was, in 2001, he won the last race of the year at New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that was before, obviously the last race before he became a every race of the whole season driver in 2001 he ran 17 races and got one win 2002 36 races zero wins 2003 36 races two wins right so he's got three total wins yeah and they all all in the richard shoulders 31 i know he i think he replaced mike skinner in the 31 i may be misremembering that but uh i believe he did because i've seen footage of his new hampshire win and mm-hmm. he had uh, it was the lowest 31 for sure. Yeah. I do remember that, yeah. And then Stanton Barrett, you said, ran NASCAR 1999, 2000, 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, 8, 18, 19, and 20. He ran all those races. He ran a total of 25 races. Um, let's see here. He ran a, uh, four races in IndyCar in 2009. And I'm not seeing any statistics from CART. So I believe he only did IndyCar. Right. And so I think that is one we can actually call a true NASCAR to IndyCar crossover. So that might be the only one that's anything even close to Jimmy Johnson, because we'll get into this shortly, I'm sure, but we can't count the one-offs because that's really just to chase the Indy 500 win. It's not really becoming an IndyCar driver. So I think this might be the only instance in which we find that. And I'd still argue the case of Stanton Barrett because he never ran full-time in either series. Which, granted, Johnson's not going to run full-time, but he's going to run close to full-time. I think it said he was going to run like 10 out of 17 races next year. That's mighty close to full-time. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I believe he's not doing any of the ovals. Um, and I don't know as to why exactly. I believe, if unless he's, he might have stated this already, but I remember he's very, he doesn't like IndyCars on ovals as a safety measure. I remember when, uh, when Dan Weldon passed away at the Las Vegas IndyCar race, I, I do remember Jimmy Johnson speaking publicly that IndyCar should consider becoming solely a road course and street course series. And so for someone of his stature to be going into IndyCar without an Indy 500 ride as part of that, you have to think that's got to be a safety measure. Because some, you know, anybody would put Jimmy Johnson in the Indy 500 just for the attention. 100%. Yeah. So I, I don't, like I said, I haven't seen anything published this year about exactly why he's avoiding ovals, but I, I don't see any other reason why that would be. Even if I was avoiding, even if I, if I was in Jimmy Johnson's shoes, I would still try for the Indy 500. I mean, I, I get. I mean, I get it. It's a safety measure. Like, mm-hmm. You don't want to get hurt. He but might be able to be talked into it. When you're a man of his caliber, seven mm-hmm. championships, two Daytona 500s. Why not just go ahead and slap a Indy 500 to go with it? Well, if his wife won't let him, then <laughs> he might not be doing it. Maybe it's not just his wife. Maybe it's like. Maybe it's his personal decision. But yeah, I see where you're coming from. No, I, I think it is personal because it's. He he definitely would have done it that way, or certainly would have done it by now. But so the, I, kids at home, he's got a wife, he's got a family. Huh. So. so I guess for all intents and purposes, we from our initial discussion here, we can we can call Jimmy Johnson's venture here a first timer of its of its kind. But there have been plenty of IndyCar and NASCAR switches. Like you got Danica Patrick, Tony Stewart, uh, AJ Foyt. Dario Franchitti, <laughs> plenty of drivers. Yeah, I don't actually, remember if Paul Menard, did Paul Menard ever race IndyCar? I don't believe he did. He might have done Indy Lights or something like that. Menard, though, the name Menard is going to come up a lot in your IndyCar research because the family sponsored and was a part owner in a lot of those situations. So there's there's a lot of Menard history in IndyCar before even considering Paul Menard's NASCAR career. I'm scrolling through and he does not have any IndyCar starts. Yeah, I was pretty pretty sure he was a through and through NASCAR guy. He did have six total truck series races, which I did not know about. Yeah, I don't I don't remember him anything before his DEI Bush series. Because I think he was number 15 in the Bush series. That's the earliest I remember of him. Only the earliest I remember of him was when he was in the 27. Okay, so do you remember his Brickyard win? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I don't remember if I watched it. I don't remember much from that year. Yeah, that was, that was a, a rare good finish for a Brickyard 400 because Jeff Gordon was all over him, and that was a really good battle to the, to the win. So that was a... One of the few really good Brickyard 400 finishes. And uh, one of the NASCAR games I have, he drives the 98, so that's how I learned that he drove the 98 at one point. Yeah, that that would have been the last legs of the Yates team when they were trying to to reorganize. That was, I think that was only one year. That was a weird, that was a weird, a weird car. But uh, but anyway, so if you search. On Google, 
NASCAR drivers in IndyCar. They actually, it'll actually generate responses before you have to open a web page. And uh, so NASCAR, so IndyCar people that have crossed over to NASCAR just off of the list that I see here: Juan Pablo Montoya, Dario Franchitti, Mario Andretti, Robbie Gordon, Tony Stewart, Sam Hornish Jr., uh, Dan Gurney, John Andretti, Janet Guthrie, and actually that Janet Guthrie is backwards. She was NASCAR first. Um, so yeah, th- those are. Oh, and Patrick Carpentier did it more recently. So we that's also got James Davison recently coming over. Mm-hmm. So and that... I have a, there's a link here. I just typed in NASCAR drivers to IndyCar. 18 drivers who have raced at Indy 500 and the Brickyard 400. Mm-hmm. Tony Stewart, Kurt Busch, AJ Foyt, John Andretti, Danny Sullivan, Sam Hornish Jr. Um. I don't know how you're going to try to pronounce that one. I think his name is Jacques Villeneuve. It's Jacques Villeneuve, yes. Yes, and then Robbie Gordon, Danica Patrick, Larry Foyt, Max Pappas, Scott Purett. Pruitt. Pruitt. (laughs) Jeff Barbum, Patrick Carpentier, A.J. Allmendinger, Jason Leffler, J.J. Yaley. That's it. Yeah. I had no idea J.J. Yaley raced in the Brickyard. I mean, in the Indy 500. Yeah, J.J. Yaley was a – he was supposed to be sort of a Tony Stewart clone because they had done the same thing in sprint car racing. They had both won the Triple Crown. I think they might be the only two people that have done it, um, which is winning the USAC midget sprint car and Silver Crown championships all in the same year. Uh, Tony Stewart did that in 1995, and Jason Leffler did – excuse me, J.J. Yaley did that in – I can't remember what year exactly it was, but anyway, he was a bona fide open wheel guy and they tried to put him in IndyCar and it didn't work. And then they tried to put him in NASCAR and it also didn't work for a long time. Um, JJ Yaley nearly, if FedEx hadn't been patient about it, it's very, Mm -hmm. very possible that team, Denny Hamlin's car may never have existed. If FedEx had just said, you know, we give up, this guy's terrible. Then that, that could have, certainly altered history a bit as far as uh, the Gibbs history is concerned. I'm looking at JJ's uh, racing reference page. He ran an IROC in 2004. Really? Did not know. What, what would he have qualified for IROC? Was that because of his USAC stuff? I, mean, I don't that. know. Um, he started NASCAR, both the Cup and Xfinity Series, in 2004, right. as well as the Truck Series in 2004. So, the first he was ever heard of was 2004. Yeah, in, in stock car racing. Yeah, so that had to have been yeah. because of his use. So, the USAC Triple Crown was probably in 2003. Let me look that up. I don't know if you watch any dirt sprint car racing i mean i've seen clips of it throughout twitter stuff like that but i've never attended a dirt race nor have i watched one on television unless you count the dirt derby for the truck series i watched that one yeah that's certainly a dirt race um yes two yeah 2003 was the triple crown so he was an irock based off of that which is interesting i didn't 
I Rock was really struggling this last couple of years. So it's they the pro, the uh, on track product wasn't that great. So we got one driver that went from NASCAR to IndyCar, and that's Jimmy Johnson. Mm-hmm. Unless you count Stanton Barrett, but uh, again, I don't think he ever raced full time in either. No. So I guess the good news with all that, I guess if we need to make a point or have a thesis about this, is that really he's got nothing to aspire to. There's not, you know, the, the sky's the limit on how good he can do, but he doesn't have anyone, there's no one to compare it to. So if he, if it doesn't work out quite the way everyone's expecting, it's not really, it's not, it's going to be hard to consider this a failure because there's no one that's really tried this before. Full time, at least. I mean, you've got Kurt Busch, who's raced the Indy 500. Mm-hmm. You've got plenty of guys that have gone back and forth. Yeah, but that's that seems to be an apples and oranges kind of comparison, because especially if Jimmy Johnson's not even going to do the Indy 500. That is true. I mean, but you got, like I said, A.J. Allmendinger went to IndyCar for a couple races mm-hmm. during his suspension. So it's, it's just a matter of so I guess, I guess let me put, let me put it to you this way then, what do you want? Like what like what was a realistic goal or expectation? Do you want to see if you're let's say you're Chip Ganassi, what do you expect out of out of Jimmy Johnson this year? Well, I don't know. next year, excuse me. I'm gonna go back to his racing reference page and see if he raced IndyCar before. I do not believe he, he did, did not. I can... I can tell you he did not. Yeah. All right. Well, then my expectations are very small. Um, I don't expect him to do big things. Mm-hmm. Like maybe run mid pack at best. Like the occasional top five would be great, but I just don't see. I just don't see him being up there with the rest of. Like you got your Scott Dixons mm-hmm. and you got Colton Herta's, Alex Rossi's. He's going to be nowhere near those people. He's a rookie. And you could yeah. argue that he's got racing experience with him, so he might he might do big things, but at the same time, you know, he's also old. Like, not to be disrespectful, <laughs> but he's in his 40s, whereas some of the more recent rookies like Felix Rosenquist is like 20 something so yeah that that's another interesting point that you brought up there because IndyCar typically historically is a young man's game you know people in their 20s and 30s are dominant and very rarely do you get someone good in their 40s um, but that actually seems to be turning a bit um, you know Takuma Sato won the Indy 500 this year and he's in his 40s uh, Ilio Castroneves isn't doing a full season right now, but he's in his 40s and still pretty competitive when he does it. Um, Tony Kanan's kind of in a bad ride this year, but he's also in his 40s. There's a, there's a real, much like NASCAR is doing, you know, Kevin Harvick seem, you know, looks better now than he did when he was in his 20s. Um, it seems like there's, there's an opportunity. I, I don't think age will be able to be his excuse in IndyCar for Jimmy Johnson because... There, there's certainly a lot of stick to with it with the old timers in that series, just like there is with NASCAR now. I got Felix Rosenquist 
Rosenquist po- pulled up his racing reference page. He is 28 years old, and he mm-hmm. has a win this season. And then there's Jimmy Johnson, who's 44. Right. And he's only Felix only has two full time seasons under his belt. And he's already got a win. And that's he's got the, one win, yeah. three podiums, and one pole in his right. career. And this is only his second year. And he's a young cream of the crop driver. He's only 28. He's got a lot of time left in. I'm hoping that he's got a lot of time left in IndyCar. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's going to be his, you know, his teammate and him and Dixon. Those are the kind of, that's the kind of equipment Jimmy Johnson's going to have. At least you would think. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Have they said who's going to sponsor that car? They haven't announced anything, but I'm pretty sure that he's going to probably have ally with him. Oh, okay. I don't know. All right, so we've talked about his expectations. So, so I guess we'll call it a couple of top tens, maybe a top five, and we can call that a successful season for his, what, 12, 13 races? Mm-hmm. And then on the off chance that he gets a podium will be a huge day for racing fans. <laughs> yeah, it certainly helped the, uh, I would hope, the TV ratings for the road course races would be improved on that. Mine. Like we mentioned earlier, we got plenty. We got plenty of people that went from IndyCar over to NASCAR, like Tony Stewart. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stewart ran full time in IndyCar. He got three wins, seven podiums, eight poles, and I don't see anywhere where it says championships on here. So I don't... Uh, 1996 Indy Racing League champion. That's off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure that's the year it was. It was the Indy Racing League had a weird schedule that year, so it, it may be listed as 97 or 96, 97, but he does have one IndyCar championship. It says in 96, he ran three out of three races. In 1997, he ran 10 out of 10 races. Right. Oh, yeah, he won 1997. It's right here in rank. Yeah, they that that season was like a year and a half made his one-point season. Um, they had this weird idea that they wanted to start the year after the Indy 500 to make, and then come back around in the next year to make the Indy 500, the last points race, Mm -hmm. like with the moronic idea that they needed to make the Indy 500 worth something more than it already was. Cause it's just the Indy racing. Just be glad that you weren't around then. Cause that was, that was awful. IndyCar nearly died from all that shit. Uh, but uh, but anyway, they that's a they had a very weird schedule, and Tony Stewart ended up winning the the point championship for that year. So I mean, Tony Stewart, he's got to be one of, if not one of, if not the most successful transition driver. He's got a champ. He's got three championships in NASCAR and a championship in IndyCar. So I mean, I could call that a successful switch. I mean, obviously, I don't expect the same out of Johnson. Like Stewart's last full time year was 1998, and he finished third in the standings fast forward to 1999 um his first nascar season three wins 12 top fives 21 top tens two poles and fourth in the standings that's a pretty successful rookie year right Um, and that's just for cup um in 98 tony stewart actually did full-time indycar and full-time uh xfinity series at the same time and that was so at the time, people were wondering if that was going to be too much, but he did really well in both. 
1998 Xfinity Series for Tony Stewart. 22 out of 31 races, zero wins, five top fives, five top tens, two poles, and he finished 21st in the standings. Okay, I thought it was full-time. So it was almost full-time. He did most of the races. Um, 98 for IndyCar. 11, 11 of 11 races, two wins, four podiums, three poles, and he finished third in the standings. Yeah, so that, that was actually, you know, someone tried to do that today. That'd be pretty interesting. Uh, that that didn't get enough attention. It's America, racing in America was different back then, but it was, it actually be pr- regarded as pretty neat, especially at the way television coverage is now. If someone tried to do a, a, a almost full-time NASCAR while doing a full-time IndyCar. Mm, you got James Davison, but I think he only did one IndyCar race this year. Yeah, he that was an Indy 500 deal, and I don't know if you watched the Indy 500. That car didn't last too long. I did. It went up in smoke real quick. Like yeah, the, that... it looked like it had opened like a portal to heaven. Like, <laughs> stick your hand in there, and there you are. I think they said right. it was a crimped brake line that caused. I I get. I can only assume the hub exploded from that. I don't know, man, but it was a big fire on that car. And I'm yeah, glad that... I'm driving it. <laughs> Yeah, that kind of gave uh, Rick Ware another black eye, but what are you going to do? So we got crossovers from IndyCar to NASCAR, and there's like all, all those one-offs, obviously. Oh, wait, we didn't even talk about Danica Patrick. Danica Patrick from NASCAR to IndyCar was something, or from IndyCar to NASCAR. Mm-hmm. Because she was doing really well in IndyCar, and then she said she was moving over to NASCAR. I think that shocked a lot of people. We'll see. Uh, IndyCar series. series. Uh, 2005, 17 of 17 races, zero wins, zero, zero podiums, three poles. And it was basically the same throughout the rest of her time there. Fast forward to 2008, one win, one podium, zero poles, and that would be her only win in IndyCar. Mm-hmm. And then... She went full-time IndyCar until 2011, and then 2012, she switched to full-time Xfinity Series, 2013 full-time NASCAR Cup Series, and then she finished out her career one one race in NASCAR, one race in IndyCar, and we haven't seen from her, her, seen or heard from her since. Well, we've certainly seen or heard from her. She's, <laughs> she's, on, she's still uh, doing a lot. She's on, she does the uh, Indy 500 studio stuff um oh, that's so, right. she, so she's I'm, still around i mean she's got yes, her books I'm and all that she, she hasn't done anything since yeah she, she's got her own business ventures that are outside of racing and that's you know good for her but and it's not i certainly don't want to pick on danica during her discussion even though we're probably going to sound like we are danica is the culmination and probably the last straw of drivers chasing money and sponsorship from IndyCar to NASCAR, viewing NASCAR as more lucrative, not doing anything close to expectations and then, yeah, and ending up hurting everyone involved. Um, you know, Tony Stewart's pretty lucky that the 10 car is what it is now. Uh, Cause that, that, that could have been really bad if they didn't get some recovery sponsor and drivers once that all that went away. Because mm-hmm. especially after 2015 when GoDaddy left and then they got scammed by Nature's Bakery, it started looking real bad. Yeah, was, was Aspen Dental was their only legitimate sponsor for that year. 
Mm-hmm. And then Danica called it quits, came back with GoDaddy for like Rick Ware Racing in the seven or premium motorsport, some some small start park team. And then Eric Almarola came in with all Smithfield money. Because mm-hmm. I don't know if it's family owned stakes in Smithfield, no pun intended, or <laughs> if like they just like him. I don't know, but Smithfield has followed him everywhere. To my knowledge, they just like him. Um, I, yeah, I don't think there's any family thing there, but I, I do a believe. Really nice person. I know part mm-hmm. of like sponsor attachment to people is like off track behavior. And I met Almarola at Daytona last year, and he was really nice. Uh, I just got his autograph at a holler. So like I sat down and chatted with him. I wish. Right. Um, but like they had like a signing limit of two things, and mm-hmm. so I got two hats signed. And as I turned away, he's like, now, wait, I want to sign your shirt. And I was like, well, you didn't have to ask me twice. So <laughs> and the next cool. day, because it rained, because it was the, it was the summer Daytona race. Obviously, it rained on Saturday. So we went back on Sunday. We were walking around, like, the concourse area. We went back to the Stuart Haas hauler. And uh, we were telling the guy, because he was there yesterday, and he was, like, the employee of that hauler. Mm-hmm. We were telling the guy about a thing. He was like, Oh yeah, if he sees something with his name on it, he'll sign it. It's like, well, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty neat. Mm-hmm, he's a nice guy. Like, if I was a sponsor, like you got people, and not to be disrespectful here, but Kyle Bush, like he, he's, I don't know what the right word is. He's just not the nicest to reporters, especially after a bad race. Like, if you go back to Las Vegas playoff race last year after he mm-hmm. got cut off by a lap car. He is just kind of annoying to the reporters. He's like, oh, I'm only here so I don't get fined. I mean, the 53 car cut me off. So that is, is that all you wanted to hear? He was just kind of <laughs> annoying. Like, if Almarola had that, he'd talk to them still. Like, 2018, after he got wrecked on the last lap of the 500, right? he would have thought that he would be mad and he wouldn't want to talk. No, he went out and talked to Vince Welch, whoever was, whoever yeah. was reporting from the infield care center. He went out, talked to him, and he was like, I mean, it sucks that we got wrecked out, but oh well. We'll just go get him next week. Whereas Kyle Bush would have been like, it sucked. <laughs> yeah, Kyle, Kyle Bush is kind of a interesting guy with that. I guess the, the Bush family kind of, they're, well, they're wired real, differently. Really cleaned up his act. After Kurt got dropped from Pennzoil, uh, from the 22 car, I just want you to know he needed to stop being so annoying i guess is the right word because he spent those two years at the 51 and the 78 car mm-hmm. and if you go back and listen to uh some of those like radio clips from him he absolutely hated it yeah he, he was from, he went yeah, he from was, premier yeah. equipment to mm-hmm. start park yeah phoenix racing was was rough on him uh i don't know he I'm just I'm glad he's he's better now. I guess I don't know if it was strictly anger management or whatever it was, but he claims that he has gotten professional help and that's what helped him with that. So And then he had that little incident in twenty fifteen where he the, the domestic abuse thing. I think so. I don't remember. Yeah, it was I don't know if it was uh, I don't think it was anything that got him officially charged but it was certainly a bad sounding situation i don't remember if it was if he actually did hit anyone or anything like that but yeah something that certainly wouldn't have been acceptable no 
And the only reason he didn't race in those couple races was not because he was in jail. Uh, it's probably because he was being investigated and they didn't want anything to interfere with that. So they right. said, you don't get to race. I don't know the whole situation. But to my knowledge, I do not believe he was arrested for that situation. No. And that they're actually, that gets kind of scary, that whole situation. Not just, not considering the domestic abuse part of that, but his defense of that is Kurt Busch claimed that his, I don't know if it was his wife at the time, the, the woman, but he claims that she is a like secret agent for the government who was going out assassinating people. Uh Oh yeah. So if if Um, you, you could probably do another whole podcast episode about that. If you, if you, yeah, that's news to me. Do some uh, research on that. He claims that she would come back like and her clothing would be covered in blood and stuff. Cause she would be, you know, out killing people or something like that. It's it was, ridiculous. It was pretty wild. So, and like Kurt Bush, he was one of those one-off people went and ran the Indy 500. Right. Yep. He drove uh, for Andretti in, mm-hmm. can't remember what year it was, but uh, he actually did pretty well. And that was, it's, what did he finish the race? He did. Indy I right now okay so while you're doing that i'll go ahead and i'll kind of rattle off the the uh people that did not necessarily a one-off sometimes there was another race here or there but the ones that are generally considered one-offs from nascar to indycar for the at least the indy 500 uh bobby allison uh, donnie allison um kale yarborough leroy yarborough uh back in the 60s and 70s were all known for doing one-offs because back then uh, the Indy 500 and World 600 were done on different days. Um, I don't remember if it was a Sunday, Monday. I think it was like that. I think is the I think the Indy 500 was on the Memorial Day itself, and the World 600 would be on the Sunday day before. So mm-hmm. there were people that were able to manage to do both. Um, so if you while you're looking up the one-off statistic, I can te- already tell you the most successful person has done both races in the same year. They weren't on the same day like Tony Stewart, but the ones that did it in the same year, uh, Donnie Allison won the race at Charlotte and came in, I think, third. He did very well in the Indy 500. He got, I want to say, a top five uh, when Donnie Allison did that. So he's actually the person that did the best doing both races in the same year. Kurt Busch finished sixth in that race. In the Indy 500, yeah. Yes. That was and his I remember, only ever IndyCar race, and he finished sixth. Yeah, and he did pretty poorly. I think he had motor trouble in the NASCAR race. So him trying to do the double wasn't didn't quite work out. I know Tony Stewart's the only person that did the double in one day and actually ran all 500 miles and all 600 miles. In, in both, I think he got a top five in both races for that. I'm looking up right now for Kurt, and that is his Charlotte race. He finished. Let's see. Charlotte. Oh, I'm getting there. <laughs> 
Coke 600. Let's see, where is our good friend Kurt Busch at? Alex Bowman was in that race 2012 or 2014. Hmm. Uh, was that BK or Tommy Baldwin for Bowman? Probably. Um, actually, his car number listed on it. I believe it is provided. Uh, let's see, where is he? Danica Patrick finished like she finished 39th. Alex Bowman, BK Racing. Okay. Let's see, where is Kurt? That was back when he was in the 41. So I'll find 41, car number 41. Right. Fortieth. Okay, so yeah, he definitely had engine. He problems. had engine troubles. He didn't. There were three cars with engine trouble. Four cars with engine troubles and two cars that crashed. David Gilliland and Josh Wise crashed, and then Justin Allgaier, Ryan Truex, Danica Patrick, Kurt Bullitt. Actually, hold on. Allgaier was running. It was. Ryan Truex, Danica Patrick, Kurt Busch, and Reed Sorensen all had engine troubles. Everybody oh, else uh-huh. finished. Gotcha. Okay, so he so he almost did the double, but not officially speaking. Um, as while we're on the subject of doing the double, I know Robbie Gordon practically did it because he finished seventh in the Indy 500, and then like was one lap down in the the Coke 600. Still did well. I think he was like fifteenth or sixteenth. So he, for all intents and purposes, he did the, he did the double, even though he was minus one lap on the on the one. I believe Jeff Gordon has done the double at some point in his life. Uh, no. Jeff Gordon never did. Jeff Gordon never did IndyCar. At least not well, to that did. capacity. Nah. Let me. I'll bring him up for you. I'm pretty sure. If you get down to nuts and bolts of the whole crossover thing. Mm-hmm. Then uh, you got, uh, I guess you consider Dale Earnhardt Jr. as, because um, he did uh, the iRacing thing. Yeah, I guess that he he certainly has the most unique one-off uh, by doing the uh, IndyCar iRacing at, was it Michigan he did? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Alright, my fat fingers just accidentally pressed the stop recording, so this is a second recording of this, because okay. <laughs> and it's getting very specific, so did iRacing in Michigan and stopped doing NASCAR because of uh, concussion. He has never competed in an actual event of uh, any car but he has done eye racing. Right. And so Jeff Gordon, I just double checked to make sure I wasn't crazy. Now he's never done any, any type of Indy car racing. He's uh, he did the sprint car thing young, uh, but his cup series career started so young. He was full-time NASCAR at 21. So His first full-time season in the cup series was, 2000, he was 25 years old. Who were we talking about? Junior. 
Oh, Jim, oh yeah. Sorry, I was talking about Jeff Gordon. Uh-huh. And uh, he was 25 in 1999. 24, 1999, he did five races. One top right. ten. <laughs> so, and it was Junior. So I guess we've talked about, so we've talked about Jimmy Johnson's plan. We've talked about uh, whatever little circumstances we found of NASCAR people doing Indy. I think we should probably steer now towards specifically the IndyCar people that tried to go full-time at NASCAR. I can give you a list of about seven people right now. You got uh, Tony Stewart, Dario Franchitti, Juan Pablo Montoya, AJ Foyt, Danica Patrick. Um, I guess you could consider it James Davison. That's debatable. And uh, one more to satisfy the... um, I don't know. I got six. Yeah, it's fine. Um, yeah, for for the AJ Foyt, sort of. I mean, AJ Foyt. I don't remember. Obviously, it was before my time. Um, he was always the kind of guy who was going to do it just to rack up as many wins in both. I don't remember him trying to come to NASCAR to like become a full time NASCAR guy and never do IndyCar again. Because um, he was always he's one of the greatest to ever do IndyCar. He was probably never really going to leave it. Um, but he was very good in NASCAR. He you know, certainly has one of the distinctions of winning the Daytona 500 and Indy 500, and only a few people can say that. Um, so, so certainly from that era, that would be the, the best instance of that. Um, but the ones we need to focus on for this are what happened during the early 2000s and kind of stopped with Danica. Danica was probably the last one. Um, but the ones that really that we need to focus on for our discussion would be Juan Pablo Montoya, Dario Franchitti, Patrick Carpentier. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. To a smaller extent, AJ Allmendinger. And then of course, Danica Patrick. And I may have missed one in that, but that's the, that's the core type of people that I think are going to be the best for this discussion, at least as a mirror image to what Jimmy Johnson did, because we can consider Jimmy Johnson obviously has conquered NASCAR and is doing something to see, you know, to see how he can do in a new series. Um, Mm -hmm. Most of these people that we're going to talk about here, besides Danica, have conquered open wheel racing they were champions indy 500 winners you know, very well regarded people and they were coming to nascar to ex- with the lofty expectations of doing the same thing and that's part of why the expectations for jimmy johnson are so low is because of the people we're going to be talking here had so much struggle that we eventually learned our lesson that it takes time and there's very few people who can do everything well because um, Tony Stewart made us all think that anybody could do it because when Tony Stewart came in, you know, we, we ran through all his statistics. He did NASCAR just as well as he did IndyCar. And there was almost no learning curve. He, cause I remember him when I, I was, I had to, I was what, eight years old when Tony Stewart was coming up in NASCAR. And I remember him being an IndyCar driver and wondering, you know, why is this guy so good at NASCAR? He's already, he's running top fives in a, in the shell Joe Gibbs Bush series car and like it was nothing. Yeah, it was, he made it look like it was the easiest thing in the world that he could just drive any, you know, anything with wheels and him doing that made a lot of other people think once I've done this in IndyCar, then it's time to go to NASCAR because I'm, I'll just be naturally good at it because, because Tony Stewart was. Mm-hmm. 
So I don't know the years of this. I don't think the years are going to be important, but I think we can talk about these one at a time and then we can kind of just, you know, have you run the stats on them. Then we can talk about what they did and, and see how big of a failure it was. Cause I might be misremembering some of these, if that works for you. And um, before we get into that, I just want to mention uh, Connor Daly. He did, he's a full-time IndyCar driver. Uh, he ran one Xfinity series race in 2018. And then he ran Las Vegas race on Friday. In the truck, yeah, and he actually did pretty good. He outran his uh, his teammate. He beat Travis Pastrana. He finished 18th. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he got lapped on the last lap under Green, but otherwise he would have finished. He was very close to finishing on the lead lap. So that was like, that was pretty impressive. Um, I know that was that team was supposed to be him. It was Daly Pastrana and then Natalie Decker, but Natalie Decker didn't get the race because of uh, a medical issue, but. And then his Xfinity series, he started 15th, finished 31st. Mm-hmm. And he, as far as I know, did not did finish the race. Hmm. Interesting to see what he has to do. He's uh, he's getting pretty good in, at IndyCar, but hopefully he won't uh, try to be like the people we're, we're about to talk about here. <laughs> so, all right. So I guess the first one we should talk about is mm-hmm. Juan Pablo Montoya. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would consider him just before we get into the stats while you're pulling him up, I would consider him a success in everything he did. Um, he was a very good cart series driver and IndyCar driver. He won, he won the Indy 500 before coming to NASCAR. He won at least a couple championships. Then he went to F1, did very well in F1, uh, for someone who races aggressively. Um, he, I remember him driving for Williams in some cars that probably shouldn't have done as well as they did, but he was sneaking in. Maybe they were good cars, but they were nothing compared to the Ferraris at the time. That was when Michael Schumacher was at his absolute best and the Ferraris would always come one, two, and then Montoya would usually get that third place podium and then he'd sneak in a couple wins. That was, so he was obviously very good in everything open wheel he did. And then too much fanfare came to NASCAR and I, uh, for Chip Ganassi, and I, you can tell me the years that it was. I know he he started by doing a Homestead race. Two thousand six, he started NASCAR's first ever NASCAR start. Okay, so was the Cup Series race his first one? The the Homestead one. I will look. Okay, I remember he drove a number thirty Texaco car, Havilland Texaco yep. car, and did respectably, Homestead. and then got wrecked out by somebody in that race. It was. So he was a from the start looking pretty good, and then the next. So, so what year are we on then? So what year was he first full time? Two thousand seven. He ran every race. Okay. And went from two thousand seven to two thousand thirteen, and then he did two races in fourteen. Okay. So, looking at his NASCAR career, uh, I know off the top of my head, he won at least one Cup Series race. He won at Sonoma. Uh, he won a couple of Xfinity races. Should have won a couple more because he was he was considered almost unbeatable on road courses for a, a short amount of time uh, for Chip Ganassi. And he won a race in NASCAR Cup Series and he won a race in the Xfinity Series. Okay. And then all of a sudden, it seems like Ganassi went into its dark ages while he was with the team. Um, 
because he was fairly consistent. You know, he didn't really wreck a lot of cars. He wasn't struggling. It just seems like the cars weren't performing very well. Um, Because I remember NASCAR changed its testing rules and a lot of weird stuff like that. And the Ganassi cars seem to suffer from that. Um, 2009, he had seven top fives, ten top, or 18 top tens, two poles, and he finished eighth in the standings. Okay. And I think that was his, aside from wins, that is his best statistical year. His highest rank, his highest amount of, uh, yeah, his highest number of top fives, his highest number of top tens, mm. and his highest standings finish. So that's actually pretty good. I don't, I don't remember him being that being that good, but obviously he was. So, so you can see when you consider that for someone who did so, so his IndyCar career, let me see here. In 2010, he won a race, six top fives, 14 top tens, and then he got his career best number of poles with three. In which series was that? Was that still NASCAR? That was Cup, okay. Um, Because you compare that to his NASCAR, or excuse me, his open wheel career. In IndyCar, he has five wins, or I I shouldn't say that. He actually... Before NASCAR, he had he had four wins, um, and then he got one when he came back. Um, four wins, a bunch of podiums. He came in second in points in. I oh, know. Wait, I'm sorry. That's that's all. He actually did better in IndyCar after leaving NASCAR when he went to Penske. So my my statistics are off there. So sorry about that. Um, but he got seven wins in F1, thirty podiums. 13 poles and was third in the driving championship twice. That's very different from his cup series. He never won the championship in the cup. Right. But actually I really didn't, if you would just, if I went in blind without any statistics, I, and if you asked me how high up in points he ever finished, I didn't know that he had a, eighth place in points and it, I, I didn't know he was ever top 10 so that's actually that's pretty interesting yeah and I believe that was his only chase berth because the last year of them doing the 12th and I guess 2013 the 13-man chase is a spin gate but that's for right. another day right <laughs> no that was the last, that was the only time that he finished yeah. top 10 I, I totally forgot at the new system he only ran two races so Oh, okay. Interesting. All right, so so looking at... ARCA races. Yeah, but he did ARCA as sort of a tune-up for 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 NASCAR, which a lot of the guys we talk talk about will do that. Um, so I guess, you know, considering Tony Stewart is the most successful, I think Juan Pablo, can, you can look back at his doing this. He may not have conquered the NASCAR world as was expected. He certainly did well uh, for, for someone who didn't have a stock car background. And, mm. and once he went back to IndyCar, he was just as good. Cause I remember he won another Indy 500. And according to this won a, another three, he won another three races uh, coming from that and finished second in points in 2015. Um, so pretty good career for all intents and purposes there so you can consider that successful the next one we should look at would be let's go ahead and consider sam hornish jr 
Alright, Sam. Or... Now, is that one you remember? I do remember. I actually have a 77 die cast. Oh, okay. So, I do he, know. I, yeah, Sam Horner sort of has you know, him being distinctly American and always being in American open wheel. You know, he was never, you know, often F1 in the, the mystery, mysterious mystical land of, of different. He was always driving on ovals back when IndyCar was almost all a oval racing series. And he did very well in that. He won uh, three championships, I think, uh, at least two. Uh, in I think, yeah, in IndyCar. Three championships in IndyCar. Okay. Because I know once he was done with IndyCar, he never went back, or at least not full time. See his cup statistics. Zero wins, three top fives, 12 top tens, zero poles, and his best points finish 26th. Yeah, he he really was a disappointment in NASCAR because he, he did very, really well in oval track racing in open wheel cars. So he, he actually kind of had, he was lucky to avoid the higher expectations that he had because I really thought going in he was going to be better especially going in with, I don't know if, if he came up with Penske, but he was certainly a Penske guy, and that was going to be, you know, Penske wins in everything they do. Um, but he got put in a very unfortunate car, and you know, being the third Penske car usually is a, is a bad luck charm. Um, and he, just, he never quite could get it. I don't, I don't remember him doing anything particularly well <laughs> as a full-time Cup Series driver. I found here he did win one race, and that was the 2009 Sprint Showdown, which is like the qualifying race for the All Star Race. Yeah, the Winston Open or whatever they call it. Yeah. I didn't know he won that. That's interesting because he that won must... 2009. So okay, and that must have been when they had the stagger rule for the cars, um, because his car looked. He's the reason that they don't allow maximum stagger on race on stock cars anymore. It may not be the only reason, but he's a significant reason as to that. I don't know why his driving style worked with that, but I don't know if you ever see on a race car, sometimes in ARCA they still allow this, where the back end, it looks like the car is crab walking down the straightaway. Basically the back end of the car is going to the right and the front of the car looks like it's going to the left. I think I've seen that a couple of times. Yeah, he... For, he drove really well with the car completely staggered out. And I think in the Winston Open or whatever that race was called then in, in 2009, he won with that really weird stagger. And I think they changed the rule based on that. I may be misremembering it, but I know he was very good with a staggered car. So yeah, he ran full time two seasons out of his entire career was all 36 races. Mm-hmm. And that was 2009-2010. Oh, he did it in 2015, too? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right, 2015, too. He drove the nine car for Richard Petty because Ambrose disappeared off the face of the earth. <laughs> or went back to Australia, whatever it was. Yeah, he really... I've seen his Twitter page. He hasn't posted anything since, like, 2016, so I have no Not idea. Really. <laughs> And actually, uh, now that I'm looking at it, Hornish did better in Xfinity than I thought. He actually has five Xfinity wins. Mm-hmm. 
He drove. He drove for Penske and Cape and uh, Joe Gibbs and Xfinity. And I, I didn't know he came in second in points in Xfinity. So oh, I, I, I came into this preparing to give him a hard, a really hard time because of his struggles in Cup, but he actually had a pretty successful Xfinity career. And he also got some IndyCar championships. We already went over that. Right. So yeah. So I guess so. He not embarrassing failure. He just it never quite worked out in Cup Series. I remember that he was a substitute for Penske. Was was when the AJ Allmendinger thing happened? Was was Hornish the substitute for that car? I believe so. I will. Yeah, I think he. Yeah, I think he did pretty respectable in that, and he kind of turns him ahead, and that helped him extend his career a little while longer. That's probably what helped him get the Petty deal for RPM deal. Let's see. His first race of 2012 was uh, Kansas, and he drove the number 12, and then he drove the 22 the rest of the way. Okay, so that, yeah, that makes that makes sense. So he certainly was the, the substitute then for that. Okay. There's other drivers you can think of. Well, before we get to the one I need to talk about, the only other one that we should look at statistically would be Patrick Carpentier. Um, he did, he probably has the smallest sample size, at least of the people we've talked about so far. Um, and I'm assuming you don't know anything about him. He's raced NASCAR, and I've seen him before. I need to figure out how to spell his last name so I can look him up. It's basically Carpenter. <laughs> but it's not, I think it's like one letter difference. <laughs> All right. Patrick. Car. Carp. C A R P E I. N-T-E-R? Not quite. It is... Is it Carpen... Hang on. Let me... Here? C-A-R-P-E-N-T-I-E-R. Yeah. Carpen... T-E-I or T-I-E? T-I-E-R. Finally found it. And I thought my last name was weird, but we're not going <laughs> to... People are going to find me, and I don't want to be found. Gotcha. So, yeah, Patrick Carpentier uh, had a very successful uh, open-wheel career. He was in cart pretty much all of it. I don't, he did some what's now known as IndyCar, but uh, for the most part, you can consider him a cart series driver. And bring up cart, I keep thinking of go-karts. Cause right. Yeah. <laughs> When I first found out that about cart, I was like, "There's no way that it's not go karts." It was just like, <laughs> and that's actually that's actually why karting is mostly spelled with a K. And it's basically cart was like, weren't they competing cart and IndyCar? Yeah, there was a split that took place uh, where essentially, uh, it's it's more complicated than this, but essentially the owners of the Indianapolis Speedway broke off to make their own type of IndyCar racing that focused almost solely on American tracks, ovals with American drivers competing directly against cart, which was more 
road courses, more foreign drivers, and yeah. So cart cart was basically the XFL of. <laughs> no, actually, probably if you want to consider it that way, IRL was probably more of the X, the XFL because they were the ones with the with the bolder idea. The only thing the Indy that the IRL had, the Indy Racing League had, the only chip they had was they had the Indy Five Hundred, because. Uh, you can't have an uh, an open wheel season really without the Indy 500. At least that's what they were thinking. Um, the problem was almost all the talented drivers went to kart, or st- uh, depending on the year. But people like the Ray Halls, Unsers, and Andrettis, generally speaking, were not part of the Indy Racing League. And the Indy Racing League, by that token, was able to. Have people like Tony Stewart become successful because they needed people and they needed to get people out of the Midwest that had good sprint car experience and super modified experience. That's why Davy Hamilton did so well in it. It's you know, I'm if there's any IndyCar expert listening to this, they probably want to kill me right now because I'm probably getting a lot of those facts wrong. But that's in layperson's terms. That's basically what happened. The real big problem, the crux of that whole issue is that IndyCar, or the IRL, eventually said, when we do the Indy 500, we're going to want to have all of our guys in this race. So all you kart guys that want to get into the Indy 500, well, we're only going to allow a few spots. I think it's called the 28-6 and rule, if that adds up to 33. I think it does. Um, But they wanted 28 of the cars to be IRL cars and they were only going to let a few of anyone else in which that meant a lot of really good names and a lot of really good cars weren't going to qualify or even bother trying to make the Indy 500 and so the Indy 500 for a couple years had some real trash in it um, that's why Buddy Lazier won a race <laughs> won an Indy 500 because there was no one else in that race really worth the, the prestige of being there. And he won that race, I think with a broken back. He had like a fracture in his oh, spine God. or something like that. And it was, it, it was, it was uh, some, some dark times for, for Indy. And it took them a while to recover from that. You said the rule was the 28 and six rule. Why? Because the Indy racing league wanted to ensure that all of their guys got in the race. Uh, uh, because if they, cause if they had just did the 33 fastest cars, make the race, like it typically is almost, all of them were going to be dominated by the cart people. It was going to be all the big names from there were going to be in that. And the Indy, the Indy Racing League people were going to be, you know, riding around in the back if they were even able to qualify. Um, so, so if it equaled 33 people total in the race, then it would be the 28 and 5 because and I, I should go Googled it because I'm slow in math and the score, it not score. And it is 28 plus 6 is 34. Probably called the twenty-eight and five rule. I'm not saying about thirty-four people in the race. I don't know. I was not. No, it's, it's thirty. It's always thirty-three. That, that 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 I can tell you. My math just might have been off. Once while we're on that tangent, let me go ahead and look that up. So the nineteen ninety-six indie. Yeah, I got Carpentier's page pulled up. He got Z, he got one pole in NASCAR, and that came in 2008 at Loudoun. Which yep, yep, I remember that. He was in the uh, number 10 for whatever MB2 Gillette. was called at the time. 
Gillette Everham. G- yeah, Gillette Everham. Okay, so that was, and I believe that um, Kevin Harvick's current crew chief, the guy's name always slips my mind. Ronnie Childers. I believe he was a crew chief for that car. Hmm. Maybe not. Maybe he would. Maybe he was only with Scott Riggs. But I know he was the crew chief of the ten car during that t- during that vague period of time. And then his Carponier's Xfinity Series stats: zero wins, three top fives, five top tens, and one pole. His Cup statistic: zero wins, zero top fives, zero top tens, and a pole. And then his Truck Series statistic. One race, zero wins, zero top five, zero top ten, zero pole. Mm. Started yeah. in. Okay, I I remember about Carpentier him not really getting enough oval track experience because he was, and he because he considered his he was doing his somewhat later in life. I know he came into the Cup Series at thirty five, which would be considered pretty late. And looking at it now, he never even did a full time season. Uh-uh. I, when he did race, I guess, for, like, small teams like BK Racing or Premium Motorsports. Did he? Oh, okay. I know he, uh, his most notable thing was be always being a player in the Montreal Xfinity Series race. That's always where drivers like him and Jacques Villeneuve were expected to do really well. Boris. Yeah, and Boris, yeah, Boris said kind of made a name from that. Um, that was very. Those are some of the best NASCAR races I ever remember. Were from the Montreal uh, Nationwide or whatever it was at the time race. Um, those were fantastic. Lots of wrecks, lots of bumping, lots of everything. There was. It was a. Those races were what started the golden age of NASCAR road course racing that we have now. Um, mm-hmm. Road course racing was kind of an afterthought. It was it was always on the schedule, but it was sort of a drag for a lot of people. People didn't like it all that much, especially when Jeff Gordon was winning every time. Um, and that also, uh, Montreal, if I'm correct, it might have been Road America. I'm not 100% sure. So okay. I'm pretty sure that was the track that uh, Danica Patrick was going to win that race until someone yeah. was on the track. Yeah, Shoegate was uh, Montreal. And that was actually the last Montreal race. Uh, there's some rumors that stated that if, if Danica had actually won that race, they might they might still be racing at Montreal. Hmm. But yeah, Carpon- yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, not Carpani. Um, if Because we're not talking about Boris said, that's because I don't believe he ever raced any car. I think he did, like, sports cars like Le Mans and IMSA. Yeah, he's a sports car guy. Boris said... Uh, He's the only American, or at least the first American, to win the 24 hours of Nürburgring or Nuremberg, whatever they call that race at the at the track out there. Uh, he was, yeah, he was a sports car guy that um, tried to do NASCAR. I think he only raced closed wheel cars, never yeah. open. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe he did any Indy car, any anything open wheel, like you said. Um, oh, um, so I was looking. Look, I'm gonna promise to look this up to get the right answer. It's called the 25 and 8 rule. Oh, 25 and 8. Yeah, so whatever number I said no, was wrong. Um, it, yeah, so it's 25 starting positions were guaranteed to the top 25 people in Indy Racing League points. So sort of like the NASCAR when they, the NASCAR top 35 rule, if you remember that. 
Where if Someone you tells me 30... back in like 2008 when they were messing around with the cards tomorrow and introducing a bunch of these crazy rules and yeah, I because I was free yeah, they... in 2008. Oh, okay, it was the age before charters, obviously, and they wanted to make sure that the idea was you could get sponsors by saying you were guaranteed to make the race because uh, the economy was so bad at the time that no one could be insured getting sponsored. There, a lot of times there would be four or five completely sponsorless cars that were actually decent guys. Like I remember Todd Bodine won a pole at, I think Las Vegas completely sponsorless. And, uh, but anyway, so that, that was kind of how that rule came up was to, to try to do that. So bef- long before any of that, IndyCar tried to reward its own people and encourage people to come from cart to race in the inferior league because they held the, the Indy 500. So if you do your research on this someday, what you should look up is the race that took place at Michigan on the same weekend called the USA 500. It was CART's attempt at doing an Indy 500 alternative for its own people. Hmm. So that, that's, that's another whole thing and part of why IndyCar racing struggled as, as much as it did. Um, and I guess that actually is relevant to this discussion because all the problems they were having at the time probably made it more intriguing for people to come to the more stable IndyCar. That's almost certainly why Tony Stewart would have done it. Mm-hmm. So, so at least that was on topic. <laughs> um, so it looks like we've we've covered all of the major ones. I uh, have, I, it, but now it's gone. So, uh, besides oh, yeah. the last one we need to talk about. Uh, yeah, like you were talking about the charter system. I think that'd be a good topic for yet another discussion. Right. <laughs> um, so I think the last driver that we should talk about. Right, so unless there's anyone else, I think we need to talk about Dario Franchitti. Yep. All right, so let's get him pulled up here. He only did one year in Cup Series, 10 races. Yep, he sure did. <laughs> Let it stall one lap, probably during a pit cycle, and DNQ'd for two races. Mm-hmm. So for this one, I want, I want to kind of tell this in a story. Uh, this is going to sound very self-serving and probably boring to a lot of people, but um, Dario Franchitti's career says a lot about who I am as a person. Um, he was, just as everyone else we've talked about so far, very successful in IndyCar, uh, maybe even more so than, than the ones we've talked about, um, because, let make sure we get the years right here. Um, Frank, so one... 21 IndyCar wins, 59 podiums, 21 poles, mm-hmm. and one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four championships. Yep, four championships all in a row. Um, mm-hmm. Now, all, well, not, well, I shouldn't say all in a row, all in a row of what he participated in. Um, because 2008 being his cup year was the year he didn't win the Indy championship so that's part of what makes this so interesting is that he was the absolute best in indycar for his entire for this entire run of time including the time that he sucked ass so bad in 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 nascar that he ruined everything but then he he ran back to indycar and then 
was even better than he was before and ended up winning three more championships. So most of those wins and, and uh, polls and such that you mentioned come after his NASCAR failure. And the first year he was back was 2009. Five right. wins, nine podiums, five poles, and the championship. Right. So this whole thesis, uh, you know, we could probably tell the moral first. It actually, it, this crap seemed to have been motivated by how bad he did in NASCAR. I, you know, not a sports psychologist, but I could say that motivated him to do even better when he came back to NASCAR. And because he was, he certainly proved that NASCAR was where he belonged and probably could have snuck. Yeah. in IndyCar. Yeah. Sorry. And he probably could have snuck in a couple more years. Uh, in 2013, he got injured badly at Houston and decided to retire from that. And since he was age 40, if he was younger than that, he probably would have snuck in another few years and you know, possibly could have, won a few more races. I've seen uh, the footage of the crash. I don't know where he got hurt, but I know that his car went flying into the catch fence and they had to get chip on a little scooter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was it. That was at Houston, uh, the street course race around Reliance stadium. Um, he, I think he rode up on the wheel of another car and then I want to say it was Takuma Sato that just ran, had, had nowhere to go and just ran into him full speed. And it kind of you know, made the car, made it even worse and it was that that was quite a, a frightening thing but anyway that that's after all of this uh that we're talking about but he was considered very very good in indycar he'd won the championship in 2007 at age 34 winning four races 11 podiums three poles basically as good as you can get for an indycar year his average finish was 3.8 so undoubtedly he had conquered or was in the process of conquering indycar but being being the situation where he was, all the money at the time was still in the in in NASCAR. So Chip Ganassi signed him to pretty much without any preparation become a full time NASCAR Cup Series driver. Um, in 2007, he did four Xfinity races. Did did, did do terribly well in any of them. Um, I think he did one Truck Series race and one. one truck- yeah, and one ARCA series race in twenty in two thousand seven. So what's that? That's one, two, six. So six races in a type of car he's never driven before was considered preparation for taking over one of the historically great cars in NASCAR at the time. Um, that's another part of what I take so personally about this is the kind of car he was coming in. Uh, this wasn't a vehicle that was like an expansion. This wasn't just another Chip Ganassi car. This was a car that had done really well. You know, certainly, it's not like a Dale Earnhardt car or anything like that, but the number 40 in the Cup Series at the time was a revered car, uh, particularly because of Sterling Marlin. Mm-hmm. The, the Silver Bullet number 40 Coors Light car was, at the very least, a fan favorite uh, car. And mm-hmm. during Ganassi's best run in cup series that car was almost unbeatable um in 2001 and 2002 i remember sterling marlin won a a small handful of races while at an age that was considered you know probably past his prime in 2002 he was probably going to win the point championship had he not gotten hurt at kansas um and even then when he got hurt his substitute driver jamie mcmurray won in his second race from that Mm -hmm. Um, so that car, all that is to say, that car was pretty darn good. Um, mm-hmm. Now, 
when I was doing my research for this article and podcast, I wanted to say that Frank Heaty was stepping into a car that was almost perfect, but I can't say that. I didn't know that the team was struggling the way it did. Um, the 40 car was not doing terribly well. David Stremme replaced Sterling Marlin for two seasons and was not terribly good. Um, Coors Light, I think, ended up leaving at some point. Um, so they they were not as perfect as where they were. They were probably in need of a new face once it was determined that David Stremme wasn't going to be the next great thing in NASCAR. Mm-hmm. So all that is to say that Chip Ganassi decided to put Dario Franchitti, someone with virtually no stock car experience, in a car that is struggling with sponsorship, that is trying to improve itself to get back to the, the echelon of where it was. All mm-hmm. of that responsibility is put on someone with almost no experience. And so he goes into 2008, and let's just, let's see here. His finishes in his races work. I know it's easy to say he doesn't have any top tens, but that doesn't tell the whole story. Mm -hmm. Um, His finishes in 2008 were 33, 32, 33, Mm -hmm. 33, 36, 22, 32, 41, 43, 38, Mm -hmm. and four DNQs on that. So really, it's not even to say that's bad. That's almost criminal <laughs> for considering all of the the moving parts that went into this. When you consider the caliber of driver, considering the caliber of car, and considering the urgency of how good that car needed to do. Uh, that really is about the Rick worst. Ware, he, he put out Rick Ware racing numbers and I yeah. can yeah, with but hey. without a Rick Ware budget, with actually a respectable mm-hmm. budget. <laughs> Even uh, this when Ganassi still put a car in the playoffs and had Larson not had his little incident, he probably would have won a race or two and be in the playoffs. Yep. So Ganassi's had their, I guess, small resurgence with Larson mm-hmm. and Kurt Busch. Yeah, I and, mean, even even during this dark age, Ganassi was never considered a backmarker. Mm-mm. Um. So, and and it's not only that. I remember he. I'm trying to let's see. He actually, to his credit, he was running at the end of most of these races. He only officially crashed once at Pocono, and it had an engine failure at Michigan. So we can call that a a draw. He was running at the end of almost all his races, but it just it was it was so sloppy. I, I, I remember that car not doing well. I remember him in the few Xfinity races he did. I remember him crashing a lot in that. It just it was so obvious that he wasn't just not good at NASCAR. It's almost like he didn't understand how to drive a stock car. He led one singular lap at Fontana, which was probably ending was which was probably during a pit cycle. Yeah, it probably had to have been the way the way that, that worked. Um yeah, it's just it, it boggles the mind how bad that was because it it was almost in was once you get it to that point, it was almost too much patience involved. You know, looking back on it, you probably should have said, oh, yeah, they should have replaced him after a couple races. But they really couldn't have done that because the sponsors they had probably expected a high caliber driver like Dario Franchitti to, to be in the car because the sponsors for those races were very significant. Um, they had Dodge come on to sponsor a bunch of the uh, for at least a couple of the races, but they had. You know, sponsors we consider to be very good in racing even now. You know, Target mm-hmm. was on the car. Uh, 
Wrigley chewing gum in a couple different flavors, I think was on the car. Polaroid, um, Fastenal, the Hartford. Um, those are, you know, those are sponsors that you expect to have a good name attached to it. And, and with that comes a good finish. It was just, it, it was just really, really bad. <laughs> and it, it told me something based off of what happened because it came to the point where they weren't qualifying for races anymore. They, it was going to be a failure. It wasn't going to work out. And it got so bad that they didn't even have sponsorship anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, cause typically when you have this sort of situation, if it's not working out, you know, like we can go back to a, to a year, I think it was 95. Uh, this is an IndyCar, but Steve Kinzer was, and is the king of dirt track sprint car racing, world of outlaw sprint car racing. Mm-hmm. And he was brought into NASCAR also with virtually no preparation. He was driving the King racing 26 Quaker state car. And he did very poorly. He didn't qualify for a couple races. Every race he was in, he struggled for the most part. It just, it was another one of those situations where it was very clear that it wasn't going to work out. Mm -hmm. And so they got rid of him or he left. I don't remember exactly the circumstances of it. I get yelled at on Twitter whenever I try to say Steve Kenzer was a failure. Um, But anyway, they got him out of the car, but the key difference is that sponsor stuck around. Quaker state was still on the car. They put Hutch Strickland in the, in that car and they, and they did fairly respectable considering how the team was. They got a couple top tens. Um, they might've even have had a pole uh, with Hutch Strickland, but it was it. Basically he came in to save the day and at least make the, the team worth worthy of its operational costs. The problem with the 40 car is all the sponsors not only lost patience, they completely got rid of it. They had one race deals. They weren't going to re up all of a sudden Chip Ganassi had to start paying for the, the team out of his own pocket. Mm-hmm. And Chip Ganassi is not, I don't believe is the, you know, he's not a Roger Penske type. He's not a Rick Hendrick type. He doesn't have billions of dollars in capital laying around to you know, help finance a car. If it's needed, he's, his business is racing. Um, so it, it wasn't, it wasn't going to work. So he, all of that is to say that he, was going to have to shut the team down. So to turn that the back and team or the entirety of the race team. I'm sorry, what? The 40 or the entirety of his race. The team? 40. Chip Ganassi was still going to exist, but the 40 team was going to have to be shut down. Um, so let me tie that back into my personal anecdote. In 2008, I was still attending the University of Northwestern Ohio, or UNOH. Mm-hmm. And my goal there was it was lofty and stupid and crazy, but my goal was to somehow get into NASCAR as a mechanic, driver, you know, truck driver, you know, uh, hauler driver, something like that to mm-hmm. somehow get my way into NASCAR and you know, of course, be a genius, become Chad Knauss and win a hundred races. That was that was just gonna that's just what was gonna happen, you know, when you're eighteen and nineteen is the sort of things you think you can do. Mm-hmm. Um so I was in coming up on my last year there and I was very close to looking to make a decision on what I was gonna do with my life. You know, was I going to join up with an ARCA series team, you know, basically be their errand boy, hope the team survives financially and somehow get a job with, with a big team. Mm-hmm. Because I knew 
in my heart of hearts, I knew the big teams were going to be fine. You know, there was going to be, if I somehow did the grind and you know, became an employee for Richard Childress or, or Chip Ganassi or Roger Penske, everything was going to be fine once you reached that promised land. Because those cars, they're on TV every week. They've got all the corporate sponsors. Everything's fine once you make it to that level. And bring it back to the real world. The 40 car with its no preparation, lack of sponsors, a driver that has to run away back to IndyCar. Chip Ganassi shuts down the team and ends up having to lay off, I believe it was 75 people. Wow. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, the, what it, that's the amount of people it takes to run a single car team of that level, basically the, that number of people it's going to take. And he had to lay them all off um, for, you know, because he, couldn't pay for the team out of his own pocket anymore. So that clicked in my mind of there really is no job security. There's no job security anywhere really, but in NASCAR, it's just a fool's errand because you could work for the best team in racing. And certainly one of the best teams in racing would be Chip Ganassi. You could be the best mechanic you could possibly be the best hauler driver you could possibly be. But all it takes is one dumbass from Scotland who gets in over his head can't drive a car that you know, is supposed to pay your salary and next thing you know you're out of a job mm-hmm. so all, all of that self-serving nonsense is why I am uh, sitting here with you <laughs> talking about this and not uh, you know seated next to Chad Canals for the 2024 car and not getting ready for tonight's race yeah yet. of course that's exa- that's the one and only reason why I'm, why I'm not there no, that's of course not true but that is what led me to to reassess my life and you know i changed my major i have a associate's degree in regular automotive as opposed to high performance automotive and you know went back home and lived a more normal life and frankly that was the better decision looking back on it now but i so i guess i could be thankful that dario franchitti made my life more stable uh by sucking so much in nascar So, so that's my Dario Franchitti story. I don't know if that's if that was even the slightest bit entertaining or interesting, but I mean, you kept me listening. So. <laughs> well, good. But that's uh, so that's part of why this whole thing was very passionate to me, um, and that's also why I could see the the writing on the wall that Danica Patrick was going to be an issue when she came in. Um, and to her credit, she actually did really well when you consider once you consider this story her hanging around for so long, or at the very least, keeping a team operational for as long as she did. You know, she kept a lot of people employed by having that sponsorship. So even though it's very, you know, easy to make fun of her and, you know, and rightfully so a lot of times when she was making some very poor decisions about, you know, trying to run people off the road and trying to wreck Sam Hornish Jr. at the end of an Xfinity Series race, all those, you know, very duly credible issues that she had. She mm-hmm. did manage to do the grind for a while, and and you know the the team still exists today. Mhm. What with that? Like you said that the team existed because they had all that funding from GoDaddy. Now it's the same thing with Smithfield, but Alan Rolls putting enough up enough good results that Smithfield's willing to stay. Because mm-hmm. if he was running like Danica Patrick did, they would have dropped him. Like, oh, for sure. At least in in. 2020 since the the economy is a little better now um the cert- and 
the least of their problems, I would think, with Stuart Haas would be filling a seat because they only, they have too many drivers to fill seats. Because if you consider all of their, you know, Chase Briscoes and Haley Deegans and so on, they've they've almost got you know, it's like a musical chairs thing. They've got too many people and not enough chairs. It's almost like the opposite problem of this, but uh, well, it's a good problem to have. When you're looking at Stuart Haas, you got to think both Harvick and Boyer are getting to the end of their careers. Like. I know Harvick signed a deal that will go until 2023, mm-hmm. but that's probably the last re-sign he'll ever have because he'll probably call it quits at 2023 and just retire. And a lot of people were speculating that either this year or next year is going to be the last year for Clint Boyer. He hasn't signed anything yet with Stuart Haas, at least not that I can remember off the top of my head. Yeah, so he... People- he said people, he's not going anywhere, but you know that you never know. <laughs> a lot of people are speculating that either he's going to move to the 32 car because Corey LaJoy got dropped from that ride, and mm-hmm. they have a somewhat backing with Stuart Haas. So either they predict that Boyer's going to go to the 32 and Briscoe's going to get the 14 or vice versa. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing with that is this makes it sound like it's the sixties and actually there's a lot of manufacturer influence on this. It's really going to depend on what Ford wants to do mm-hmm. um, because, you know, Ford has a lot of factory influence on these teams and that's, that's gotta be why, you know, I have no sources or no Intel on this. This is just a theory, not a rumor. Um, but that's pr- gotta be why Matt DiBenedetto is not re-signed yet because that, that team, especially having all the Ford influence, Ford's got to want somebody in that car that probably isn't Matt DiBenedetto, unfortunately, whether that's Cindric or, or Briscoe or somebody else that it seems like whoever doesn't quite fit into the mold, either at Penske or Stuart Haas for right now is going to end up going to the 21 car. And that really might screw DiBenedetto really bad. I thought my predictions, I guess you could say, well, I mean, they are predictions is that Penske's just going to open up a fourth car and have the zero two. And it's either going to be Cindric or DiBenedetto in the 0-2. And mm-hmm. then the other one's going to get the 21. Which I don't see them removing Matt DiBenedetto from the 21 if he's just going to stay with the program. So that's why I think Cindric's going to get the 0-2, the non-existent but pretty soon to be existent 0-2. And DiBenedetto's just going to stay in the 21. I mean, that would certainly, I would hope that would happen you know, to keep everybody in a ride. But... I wouldn't know where the sponsorship would come from, but I mean, that's, a, that's certainly, that's something I would like to see happen. That more, more cars in the race is something I can always get behind. And also after Roush had their insane dominance in like 2006 and they had to remove the um, unlimited amount of cars per team rule. Right. Like you, you could have, I that's what's going to control dynasties. Kind of like if it was up to, I like if it was if that rule was not in place, I think Joe Gibbs would still have Matt Kenseth and still have Daniel Suarez and Stuart Haas would still have Kurt Busch, possibly. Yeah, I mean if you did it that way, just every car that had a Toyota badge on it would somehow be owned by Gibbs. It mm-hmm. would just be like the Toyota it would be called like Toyota Gibbs or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I guess just to like control the growth of teams, I guess, and just control dominance. Because you wouldn't want three teams with 17 cars each. That would just get boring after a while. Nah, not, yeah, that was a good rule. I mean, and, and Roush 
was it, the rule always was four card or not always, but even when Roush had five, the rule technically was four. It just Roush had a loophole, uh, and other teams did this too. But Mark Martin technically owned the seventeen car, mm. even though it was you know prepared by Roush and housed at Roush and all that stuff. They it was it was a very convenient loophole that you know just because Jack Roush wasn't listed as the owner, they they found a way to get around that. But they so basically what they did is they firmed up that rule that said no you. If you're every car in that shop and, you know, people sign the checks and all that, that's got it. It's all the same team, no matter who you say technically owns the car. Mm-hmm. But all right. So what, how long we've we been talking for this one? The second recording is uh, 53 minutes. I don't know how long the first one was. <laughs> okay. If I, had, right. I could give you the exact numbers, but I'm pretty sure this one's way right. shorter than the first one. Okay. So I think that's a good area to, to try to wrap it up i guess uh, at that point we should probably consider tonight's race and uh, put a nice bow on it mm-hmm. all right so it's vegas yes i, I guess i'll let you go first who you got i'm sorry so who you go first this time who you got in the race tonight all right well last time we did this we predicted pocono and i'm pretty sure both of us were wrong unless yes. one, of us pred- I, one of us predicted harvick for the wrong race but anyway um, this one's not a double header. I think they're done with double headers for the rest right. of the season. Mm-hmm. So we got Vegas. The last time we were in Vegas, uh, Joey Logano won. And the time previous to that, if I'm not mistaken, it was Martin Truex Jr. So the past yeah. three Vegas winners was 2019 spring Logano, 2019 fall Truex, 2019 spring Logano. I don't think it's going to continue to be Truex Logano, so on. So, I'm going to uh, look at my fantasy lineup because I'm pretty sure I'm not going to reveal the whole thing because okay. I don't want people stealing my ideas because I'm in a fantasy league and don't want to lose. Uh, let's see here. Fantasy. I got Logano picked to win for fantasy, but I think the past three races we've seen three major contenders Logano, Truex, and Kislowski have always been up there in contention, so I think it could be either of those three. But and again, this is also a night race, technically. I mean, it will get it starts as a day race, but it gets to the night race. Yeah, it's sort of like the old Charlotte race. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's either going to, and I know track races different. It's even a different time of year. The track races differently, but I'm still going to go with Joey Logano because he still knows his he knows his way around. Okay. I'm going to pick Joey Logano for this race. All right. For me, um, yeah, I don't do fantasy. I kind of do everything in the seat of my pants. Um, There is no good reason for me to make this pick. It's more of a wishful thinking, considering the location, the urgency, and kind of the headlines of the last week. I'm going to go ahead and pick Kyle Busch. Um, I think this, I, I have nothing to base that on. But this is the sort of race that that Kyle Busch could end up winning. Um, after all that nonsense at Bristol and all the bluster and and things, I think this. I, mean, I don't even think his track record at Vegas is all that good. Um, but I'm gonna go ahead and say say he takes it, and that way he, everyone could talk about his reverse psychology thing last week when he said he's going to be eliminated from the playoffs after this next round. He's gonna go ahead and win tonight, make the next round, and somehow yield that into an appearance at Phoenix in the final four. 
I don't know if he's going to make it all the way to Phoenix, but I could definitely see him advancing out of this round, whether that be on points or on a win or two or three. Um, I don't think he's going to win Talladega. I think he's only got one win there, and uh, I don't remember him ever being good at road courses. I mean, he's good enough to have wins at both of them, but I don't remember him ever being a major contender, aside from maybe Sonoma. I don't ever remember him contending at the Roval or Watkins Glen. He was he's he's pretty good, and he's he was considered a fair share times, but I don't ever remember him being in contention at at the Roval. No, and and given the current climate of this year, I don't think I don't think he's gonna win it anywhere that he wouldn't be expected to win. But I'm just gonna I'm gonna go ahead and and uh, make that bold prediction that he takes it tonight. Yeah, if he doesn't win tonight, then he's got to do he's got to rely heavily on points because. At Talladega, if he gets caught up in the big one, that could set him below the bar. And then especially the past two times we've been to the Rovals, someone's gone nose nose diving into the heartburn turn. And right. <laughs> causing us to really – we've seen some pretty, pretty big crashes <laughs> at the Roval and Talladega. So those crashes could really hurt the 18 team, or they could really help him if he's able to avoid them. So mm-hmm. I guess it's all just a matter of can if he doesn't win tonight, he's just got to avoid the wrecks in the next two weeks. Yeah, sounds good. All right, so anything else you want to go over? No, do you? Nope, I think we're good. I think you know, right. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go ahead and put in here that uh, make sure you keep checking uh, to Ben.com and uh, make, sure you fo- make sure if you're listening, you follow us on Twitter, follow Max, follow myself at MJ Burroughs, follow uh, the website at to Ben.com and D-O-T-O-M. Right, exactly. And uh, we'll be having an article based on this. We'll, we'll condense this information down into an article written by both Max and myself. And we'll check out there. And then hopefully from here on out, we'll be more about writing than talking. But I'm sure we'll have at some point the need to dust this off and, and talk something out again in the near future. Yep. And thanks again for being on. Something tells me this isn't the last time we're going to be doing something like this. Um, <laughs> probably not. We have... Lots of ideas, like I mentioned earlier with the charter system. That could be a whole discussion. You know, lots of different things. This was one of them. And we had a meaningful about hour, two-hour conversation. So, the first call, the first recording before I fat-fingered was about an hour. And this one's closing in on an hour. So, yeah, thanks again for taking time out of your day to do this. And... Yeah, Thank you for having me. Website and have a good one. Yep, you too. Thanks. Yep. And there you have it. That was my discussion with Matthew Burroughs about the various switches from between motorsports. Um, if you want to leave your reactions, you can follow me on Twitter. You can follow Matt on Twitter. He is at MJ Burroughs. I am at the real Maxman05. Be sure to share, and like I said, I will be providing an update on the future of this show in the future, like probably this weekend, So, but a lot of things are changing. Um, I did write my first ever NASCAR article. You can check that out on Matt's website, as he mentioned in the episode, teben.com, T-E-H-B-E-N.com. It's under his name, but the description features myself in there so you'll know it's about 
Eric Jones, the 48, and Bubba Wallace, my predictions for Silly Season. So be sure to check that out, and I'll see you guys next time. Have a good one.